If you're new, I am Jamie, and I'm one of the pastors here. And today it is my privilege and honor to invite you to point your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Grab one of the black ones and go to Luke chapter 3, which you will find on page 859 of the Pew Bible. We're going to begin reading at verse 23, and we'll read through the rest of chapter 3. We have come to the moment that you have all been waiting for, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. A list of 77 names, most of which we can't pronounce. And so I'll read and I'll pray, asking for the Lord's help on our time together, and then we'll work through this passage together. should be around 45 minutes or so. 45 minutes in a genealogy. You're welcome. Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 23. Hear now the word of the Lord. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph the son of Heli, the son of Matthat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Reza, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kossum, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, son of Joshua, son of Eliezer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mattat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Mel- Mele, the son of Menah, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, son of Aminadab, son of Admin, son of Arnai, son of Hezron, son of Perez, son of Judah, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, Son of Terah, son of Naor, son of Serug, son of Ru, son of Peleg, son of Eber, son of Shelah, son of Canaan, son of Arphaxad, son of Shem, son of Noah, son of Lamech, son of Methuselah, son of Enosh, 
son of Jared, the son of Mahilael, son of Canaan, son of Enos, son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, every word which is inspired by your Holy Spirit. And we believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable. And so, Lord, would you make this passage profitable to each one here? Use your word to move upon your people, to fashion and mold them into the image of your Son as you bring glory to him in all things. Amen. The Bible is a library of books, which is really one book with one divine author that tells one story about one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything is about Jesus. Hear now what the Bible says about the Lord Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God, that in Him all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, that He is the very image of God, that he became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. There is one God who eternally exists as three persons, as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Last Lord's Day, we saw that it is the activity of God from eternity past to exalt the Son of God. And that it pleases the Father to reveal the Son's glory to all who have eyes to see it. And that God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are all about displaying the glorious excellencies of God the Son. Everything is about Jesus. You simply cannot make too much of Jesus Christ. And the moment that you think that you've come to the height of His glory and majesty, the Holy Spirit is pleased to shatter the window above you and to bring you into a greater insight into the glory of Jesus Christ that's a thousand times better than anything you'd previously known. Many of you have heard me say this before. I don't mind repeating myself. But every text of the Bible is like a river leading you to the ocean of God's glory in Jesus Christ. Every text. And you know, if you wanted to, you could row a boat from downtown Piqua all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. If you wanted to. You could put a boat on the Miami River downtown and follow it downstream through Troy and into Dayton, where it would join up with other rivers and continue on south all the way to Cincinnati, where you would hit the Ohio River, which would then continue to carry you downstream through Indiana and Illinois, where it eventually go to the, Miss the Mississippi River, which would then dump, dump you into the Gulf of Mexico, where you could paddle your little boat around Florida and all the way to the Atlantic Ocean. 
The Bible is like this. You can put a boat on any text of Scripture, and the undercurrent of that text will eventually lead you to one place, the glory of God in the grace of Jesus Christ. Every verse in the Bible is either looking forward to Jesus Christ or looking back upon him. And some verses do both. As we come to a text like this one, which is to us about as interesting as reading a phone book, we have to remember that this text reveals something of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. There are around 25 genealogies in the Bible. The Lord Jesus gets two of them, one here in Luke and the other one in Matthew, chapter 1. And I call the genealogies these flyover passages. Because, be honest, we're in church, you can be honest, but in your Bible reading plan, when you come up against a genealogy, you just fly right over it, don't you? I mean, we all do this. Because it's like, why do these matter? Why do I need to know the? I can't even pronounce these names. It's like the Lord of the Rings. Are these hobbits? Arfax Ad? What kind of name is that? How bad do you have to hate your kid to name him Math? But listen, genealogies are tremendously important. And we all believe 2 Timothy 3.16, don't we? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Well, that word all includes genealogies, doesn't it? So there's a reason Luke put it here. It's for our profit. It's for our good. So the question is why? Why is this genealogy here? And that's what we're going to look at today. Here's my answer. So this is my answer. I'll lay this over this text. You be a good Berean, good Bible student. You do the research. You find out whether I'm right about this or not. Here's my answer. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Son of Adam, a new and better man, uniquely able to redeem fallen man. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Son of Adam, a new and better man, and uniquely able to save fallen man. Now usually we work through a passage, one verse at a time. I'll spare you that today. We'll start in, chapter, in verse 23, but then we'll bounce around a little bit. We'll hit a handful of names on the list, and we'll ask the question, why is it important to us to know that Jesus is the son of that person? And we'll look at four of those names this morning. Additionally, we, we do need to address a couple of questions that you may have about this list. Like, why did Luke put it here and not at the beginning, like Matthew did? And while we're on the subject of the comparing Matthew and Luke's genealogies, why are they so different? Why is Luke's genealogy so much different than Matthew's genealogy? So if you're counting, 
That is a seven-point sermon. So you'll get your money's worth today. All right? Let's get started in verse 23. Jesus turns 30. Verse 23 again. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Eli. Now, to us Westerners, we have this uh, silly obsession with youth, and turning 30 is seen as some kind of loss. Like I remember when I was in my 20s hearing that you can't trust anyone over the age of 30. Then I turned 30, and since turned 40. And I look back on myself in my 20s, and I think, actually, it might be the other way around. (laughs) I mean, I I look back at myself in my 20s, and I honestly did not know anything. I was real dumb. I mean, I'm kind of dumb still, but back then I was real dumb. And now I know a lot of you are still in your 20s, and we love you. And you're probably not like me. You were probably not dumb. You're probably in your 20s balanced and patient and wise beyond your years. You were probably born that way. But in Jesus' day, turning 30 was a big deal. It was sort of like a coming of age almost. At 30, the priests were activated to serve in the temple. Joseph went to serve in Pharaoh's household when he was 30. But most significant, and probably the reason why Luke puts it here, is that King David began to ascend the throne at the age of 30. And Luke wants us to see that Jesus is connected to all these people who came before him. That these names, which we just struggled to read, are real people with real stories who lived in real places. That Jesus of Nazareth is a real man with a real family tree. He is the son of these 77 names. If you're a Bible nerd like me, you may be interested to know that the word son doesn't appear in the original. It's added in there by the translators to help it be more readable. So literally, it just goes of Joseph, of Heli, of Matthat, of Levi. So this isn't a comprehensive list, and it doesn't have to be. Jewish lineages were allowed to have different names. Some names may be skipped. For much of human history, and for most certainly all of Israel's history, one's lineage was highly valued. They kept careful record of who was who. There are a number of reasons for this. One of the reasons was that who you were was determined largely by who came before you. Your parents, who you came from. So if daddy was a carpenter, you would be a carpenter. If daddy was a farmer, then you would inherit the land, and you would farm the land. Genealogies mattered because they told you your purpose. They gave you meaning to your life. You would carry the name and the honor of those who came before you. Another reason they're important is because land was tied to lineage. So land was tied to names. 
So your land belonged to your family and it stayed in your family. And even if that land was lost in a bad business deal or in a bad hand at Texas Hold'em, you would get that land back eventually in time. And so they kept records. What land belonged to what family? Another reason is taxes. Because, of course, the tax man's got to get his, so he keeps record. And Luke endeavors to show us the person of Jesus Christ is set in real time and real place, that he is really the fulfillment of all of God's promises to his chosen people, some of whose names are in this list. Matthew endeavors to show us, all right, Luke endeavors to show us that Jesus has received his his purpose from his heavenly Father, that he is walking out that purpose faithfully. Now you may have noticed in your study of Scripture that Matthew's genealogy is very different than Luke's genealogy of Jesus. And this is because the two of them serve very different purposes. Matthew endeavors to show that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. So Matthew's genealogy starts with Abraham, the first Jew. Then it goes to David. And it goes all the way down to Jesus through Jesus' adoptive father, Joseph. Luke works backwards in his genealogy, and it goes all the way back to Adam. And this is because Luke endeavors to show us that Jesus is the son of Adam, the savior of all people. And a lot of theologians read these two genealogies and conclude, perhaps rightly, perhaps not, that Luke is tracing Jesus' lineage through his mother, through Mary. Even though she's not named, her grandfather's name is Heli, which would explain the parenthetical as was supposed statement in verse 23. Matthew puts his genealogy at the very beginning of his gospel in chapter 1. And Luke puts his in a very different place. Luke puts his genealogy between the father's affirmation of his son at Jesus' baptism and the temptation of Jesus in chapter 4. Luke wants his readers to see that Jesus is the son of God, the son of Adam, a new and better Adam. And Lord willing, we'll tease that out more next week when we come to chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. So why then is it important for us to know that Jesus is the son of Adam? Why is it important that Jesus is the son of Adam? So we've already got two points down, okay? Five more to go. Still tracking with me? Good? Okay? All right. Jesus is the son of Adam. If you go down to verse 38, you see the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So who is Adam? Adam is the first man. God created Adam, the first man, and placed him in a garden to work it, to keep it. Pastor Matt was reading from this passage earlier. And God struck a deal with the first man. 
So if you have your Bible open, you're welcome to go with me. We can go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 2, which if you're on one of the Pew Bibles, that is page 2. Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, here's what we read. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And then God determines that it's not good for this boy to be alone. And if you've ever watched a grown man by himself, you know that that is true. And so he creates a wife for Adam. It presents her to the man. Now go ahead and skip down to chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her. He ate. When I was a kid, I watched, I remember watching Bible stories through an animated series called Superbook. Does anybody remember Superbook? In the episode with Adam and Eve, if my memory serves correctly, the woman is having a conversation with the serpent in the tree, whom we learn later in the Bible, later in the Bible is Satan. In Superbook, she's alone. Adam is he's not with her. He's off on his own, picking berries or doing interpretive dance or something. But that's not how it went down. We just read it in verse 6, didn't we? She gave some to her husband who was with her. Adam was there. Now remember, God had struck his deal with Adam. Keep my command and live. This wife, who God gave him to love, to serve, to care, to protect, she's engaged in the very fight of her life. The enemy of God is lying to her about the character and nature of God. Did God really say, You won't die? Adam knows, because he heard God tell him, if she eats, she's going to die. And what does Adam do? Nothing. Does nothing. Says nothing. He doesn't step between his wife and the enemy. He doesn't correct that serpent in the tree. He just stands there. 
And then when he's tempted, he caves. The Bible teaches that through Adam's disobedience, sin came into the world and death along with it. And Adam's sin was then handed down to his children such that by one man's transgression all become sinners by nature and by choice. Since Adam was the first man, all men were in Adam when he sinned. The Bible says that by one man's trespass, it led to condemnation of all men. Luke wants us to know that Jesus is the son of Adam because Luke wants us to know that Jesus is a true and better Adam. That where Adam failed his temptation, Jesus will not fail. And we'll see that, Lord willing, next week. Adam brought sin and death into the world at the tree. And the Lord Jesus will defeat sin and death by being nailed to a tree. Adam failed in a garden called Eden. And Jesus overcame in a garden called Gethsemane. Whereas Adam's disobedience brought toil and pain and death, Jesus' obedience brings peace and healing and life. Jesus is the true and better Adam. But you see, even in the first three chapters of the Bible, the current of the text is leading us to Jesus. But Adam isn't the only name in this list. There are other names in this list which you will undoubtedly recognize. Son of God, son of Adam. And then in verse 36 of Luke 3, we see Jesus is the son of Noah. You should recognize the name Noah. So if you still have your Bible open, go to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, which is on page 5 of the Pew Bible. After Adam and Eve sinned, God removed them from the garden and barred the way back. And they had children to whom they passed on their sin nature. And those children had children to whom they passed on their sin nature, and so on and so on, until this sin was like a pandemic that infected the whole world. And as we come to Genesis chapter 6, go ahead and look at verse 5 with me. We see that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then in verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God decides to pour out his judgment on the earth. He would destroy the earth and humankind with a flood. 
but he wouldn't destroy humankind entirely. In his mercy, he would bring glory to himself by saving a remnant through that judgment. So he gave grace to a man named Noah. In verse 13, God told Noah of his plan to destroy the earth with a flood. And he told him to build a boat through which he would save Noah and his family. In the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 2, we find out that Noah is a preacher of righteousness. He lived a very many years preaching to people. And no one responded to his preaching. God eventually shut him and his family in the ark. And they were the only ones to survive the flood. And then the flood came. And Noah's ark was lifted. And then the waters receded. And Noah's family came out of the ark. And the whole human race was restarted. Sort of like a new creation. In fact, in the chapters that follow, Genesis 1 and 2 language appears over and over again. Even, even with a reinstitution of the creation mandate in chapter 9, verse 7, where Noah is told to be fruitful and to multiply. It's almost as if Noah is the new Adam. And God even strikes a deal with Noah, just like he did Adam. And did Noah fare any better than Adam? Well, you don't even make it out of chapter 9 until there's another fall. Another fall complete with very familiar themes. Themes of nakedness and fruit and sin and curses. It's like Genesis 3 all over again. Noah didn't fix the problem. He didn't defeat the serpent in the tree. Sure, he was saved from the flood, but sin and death remained in the earth. And Luke wants us to see that Jesus Christ is the new and better Noah. That Jesus is himself the ark upon whom the flood of God's judgment fell. And all who are in Christ, like Noah's family was in the ark, are lifted above the floodwaters of God's judgment, and they are saved. And God's people, saved from His judgment, are unleashed as a new creation called to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth, making disciples of all nations. And in Jesus' eternal kingdom, sin and death are defeated and will be no more. Jesus is the new and better Noah. So Jesus is the Son of God, Son of Adam, the Son of Noah, and if we keep following these rivers, in Luke 3.34, we find out that Jesus is the son of Abraham. So Genesis, you still there? Go to chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, which is page 8 in the Pew Bible. Genesis chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, 
go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God strikes another deal. This time with a man named Abram, who will later be called Abraham. And if you look carefully at the language of, of verses 1 to 3, you will see it seems it's almost like a reversal of the curse that God issued to Adam. Genesis 3 all the way to 11 we see that all the families of the earth are under a curse, the curse of sin. And then we come to chapter 12, and the narrative hones in on this one man through whom all the families will be blessed. So Abraham sets out from his father's house to receive God's promise to a great nation of people. Just about as soon as Abraham leaves the old man's house, he puts the whole thing into jeopardy. There's a famine. And he goes down to Egypt. And Pharaoh thinks that his wife Sarai is pretty. And Abraham, fearing his own life, lies about her identity. Says that she's my sister. Which is half true and full lie. And Pharaoh takes her as his own. But God curses Pharaoh before he can do anything to her. And Abraham gets her back. And it works so well that he does it again later with another guy. But many years pass. And Abraham and Sarah still have no children. And the promise of God is still hanging. And so these two take matters into their own hands. Upon Sarai's suggestion, Abraham takes her servant Hagar, with whom he has a child, a boy. This is not God's way. This was not God, what God promised. And it creates division in his family. A division that continues all the way to this very day. God reaffirms his promise to Abraham that Sarah will have a child. She does. And Isaac is born. Isaac is the son of promise. Son whom Abraham loves. And in Genesis chapter 22, God tells Abraham to take the son that he loves, Isaac, up a mountain where he will offer him as a sacrifice. And Abraham believes that God will keep his promise and make him the father of a great nation of people. Somehow, through Isaac. Perhaps even that God would raise Isaac from the dead. So he agrees that he's going to sacrifice Isaac on the mountain. But at the last minute, God intervenes and provides a substitute. A ram caught in a thicket by its horns. In this we learn that Jesus is the true and better Abraham. He leaves his father's home 
to receive an inheritance of God's chosen people. Unlike Abraham, Jesus submits to his Father's will in all things and does not cave to fear. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, the son whom his father loved. He, like Isaac, is offered up by his father as a sacrifice for sins. He wore a crown of thorns like the ram caught in the thicket. Jesus is the substitute God put forward to die in our place for our sins. I love how Tim Keller puts it when he writes, And when God said to Abraham, Now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. Now we can look at God taking up his son to the mountain and sacrificing him and say, Now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. He is the son of God, the son of Adam, the son of Noah, the son of Abraham. And in Luke 3.31 we find out he is the son of David. Like Matthew, Luke is at length to show us that Jesus Christ is of the lineage of David. And this is, of of course, because the prophets foretold that Messiah would be the king who would sit on David's throne. Jesus is the true and better David. Those of you who are with us during our series in 1st and 2nd Samuel, you'll remember that David, although he was a great king and a man after God's own heart, was himself a sinner. But he failed to live out God's full purpose for his life. But David was a great man. And he was a great warrior. And he was a great king. But David was not great in all things. You only need to remember from a couple of weeks ago when Pastor Brent was in Psalm 51. To remember that David sinned against God by taking another man's wife and then having that man killed to cover it up. But that's not all that David did. David neglected his children. David didn't deal with problems in his own home. He neglected his own daughter who was sexually assaulted by her brother, David's oldest son. Like Adam. David didn't stand up for or protect those that he was entrusted to serve. By the way, if when you're reading through the Bible, notice something. You can always see how things are going by just how well people treat women in the Bible. I don't know if you've noticed this or not. But things are going well when women are treated well. And things are not going well when women are not treated well. The Bible is the most pro-woman book ever written. And anyone who says otherwise has not read it honestly. And we're going to see throughout the Gospel of Luke, Jesus elevating the place of women. 
Jesus, we find, is the true and better David. Jesus didn't use women. He gave himself up for them. Jesus did not have men killed. He was killed for men. Where David did nothing to protect his daughter, Jesus did something. Where David added to her shame, Jesus took her shame. Where David shed the blood of men, Jesus gave his own blood to be shed for men. He is the Son of God, the Son of Adam, the Son of Noah, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David. Here's why Luke put this genealogy here. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Son of Adam and Noah and Abraham and David, a new and better man, uniquely able to save fallen man. You see, Adam was humanity's representative. He was the first man from whom all men came. And so if you've ever thought, if I just had an easier life, well, then I would serve God better than I am now. If God would just make my life easier, remove my problems from my life, well, then I would really serve Him. I would encourage you, friend, to look to Adam and know that you're wrong about that. Adam had everything. A perfect life, a perfect wife. And still he rebelled against God. Or maybe you think that people in your life are the problem. That if God were just to remove all of the problem people, the selfish, sinful people out of your life, well then you would fare much better. You would serve the Lord faithfully. Well, friend, I would only encourage you to spend some time with Noah. Because God removed all the people. <laughs> Perhaps you think it's a lack of blessing. This is why I'm not serving God in my life. I need more God, more God to bless me. Well, Abraham was given land and a great blessing. And still he couldn't. David was the king of Israel. And still he couldn't. Luke goes all the way back to Adam to show that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the whole world. All the sons of Adam, Jew and Gentile. Jesus was not born in a garden like Adam. He was born in a stable. Jesus was surrounded by sinners. Jesus was poor and unknown. He had none of the handouts of these other men, and yet he kept God's commandments in their place. Jesus is our representative. Adam's representative disobedience led to sin and death. And Jesus' representative obedience leads to justification and life. Adam, all died, and in Christ, all live. And at the cross, the sinless Son of God stood in the place of sinners, sons of Adam, who were facing God's judgment for their sin, and God laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we read the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be the righteousness 
of God. So dear Christian, when you stand before the judgment seat of God to give answer for your life and the question is raised, what right do you have to be here and to gain eternal life? You will answer with all of the redeemed. Father, I have none. All I have is Christ and the gift of His righteousness which He has given to me. Commentator Kent Hughes puts it memorably. Christ, the Son of God, became a son of Adam that the sons of Adam might become sons of God. If you're not a Christian, you're a son of Adam. And the only hope for you on that fateful day is Jesus Christ. So can I encourage you, dear sinner, repent of your sins. Turn to Him today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You will be saved. Take one of those black Bibles home with you. Read the rest of Luke. And come back next Sunday. And ask someone who looks like a regular around here to teach you what it means to walk with you through these chapters, to learn about the God who became man, the Son of God, the Son of Adam. Please stand as we go to the Lord in prayer, confessing our sins. Father, we confess that we are sinners, that on our own, In our own righteousness, we give you no reason that you should love us or accept us into your kingdom. That we are like Adam, disbelieving your word and disobeying your commandments. And we come to you and we ask you for mercy. We do not ask because of anything in us, because of everything in Jesus. We have no righteousness that we should ask anything of you. We merely ask that you would look upon your precious Son, our Savior, our righteousness, and by his righteousness alone, pardon us for our sins. Father, we thank you for the mercy that you've shown to us in Jesus. We ask that you give us grace this week and enable us to walk with lives that are worthy of the calling to which we have been called. To magnify Jesus in all that we say and think and do. Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Your assurance of pardon today comes from 2 Corinthians 5.21. God who made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God.